going to invite you to open up your, uh, your Bible. Um, it'll, be, it'll be important this morning um, to follow along with me in Luke chapter 23. Um, just pull out your phone or whatever Bible you have. I think part of the point this morning is going to get back to just the raw text of, of what is happening um, uh, in the crucifixion of Christ. Um, so we'll be in Luke um, chapter 23. It's on my heart this morning. I kind of want to open with a prayer for God's church just as one body. Um, um, two heroes in my life, my, uh, Melinda and I, we have an aunt and uncle that live in Eunice, New Mexico, and they meet with a, um, a small, very, very small body of believers there. And, uh, I'm going to lift that church up in prayer today. I know that they listen to our services and, and we sort of bring them their services, um, on Sundays. And, um, I think about that small body of Christ and the things that define churches right now. Uh, this morning in Fort Collins and throughout the United States, throughout the world, uh, churches are meeting right now. We're singing different songs in different ways. Um, we conduct services differently. Uh, churches are known by the size of their attendance. They're known by the elegance of their, their building and their architecture. They're known by the t-shirts that they pass out. They're known by sometimes various things, different flavors. People talk in terms like this today. Well, this is my church. This is the church I'm going to. I'm tired of that church. I'm going to go to this one. This is how we think of church today. But God's church is one. There is one body. And with one voice, I pray that we are exalting our King. And I want to pray for the unity of God's church because what makes God's church beautiful is not the songs that we sing. It's, it's not the elegance of our building. It's not the size. It's your attendance. And that church in Eunice, New Mexico with, I don't know, maybe 10 members. I don't know. The presence of God is with them. That is the glory of God's church. The presence of God is there in his people. And right now I'm lifting up a church in Krasnodar, Russia. Um, her name is Ludmila. She contacted me recently, and, and uh, she asked for prayers for the church there, and she said, we need maturity in our men. Um, so much pride, so little leadership. Praying that their meetings would not do more harm than good. Again, unity and humility in the body of Christ. And I just want to lift that up, because if there's anything that should bring the church together as one body, humble, and unified. It's the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Uh, My Father, I just, I pray for wisdom and humility in your body today. I pray, God, that um, we would recognize us for who we are and recognize you for who you are and that um, in the cross of Christ, in the one cup that he passed, Father, that we would be one as you are one. And that we would be one in you. God, that the, the pride and the selfish ambition, the gossip, the slander, the waving the flags of our various assemblies and competition with one another, I pray that you would put an end to all of that. And that humility, we would recognize ourselves as your body and not some cheap assembly. I pray, Father, that you would breathe wisdom into the way we worship and the way we address one another. 
I lift up a church in Eunice, New Mexico, and I just love you for the people that are there, the presence of your spirit there. And I pray, Father, that you would be the glory of your body. I pray for a church in Krasnodar, Russia, and I ask God for humility there. And I ask God that the um, the servitude and the humility of, of Christ would be obvious in his people and your people today. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 23. I kind of wanted to open this with a story about the Morrows carpeting. Um, when the Morrows moved into their house, they moved into a house with really, really nasty carpeting. I don't know how many of you can identify with that. Um, their color of their carpeting was a, a really nice 60s orange gold it was full of all kinds of nastiness, and then they ripped up the carpeting, and underneath was padding that Brad describes it looked like mud. And then he ripped up the mud, that mud padding, and underneath, golden, beautiful flooring. I wonder if that's ever happened to you, if you've had nasty carpeting in your house that you've been tolerating for so long, and then you ripped it up only to, to discover that somebody was covering up some beautiful wooden floors or something. I, I believe that that's true of the cross of Christ. I think that we are the victims of thousands of years of philosophy and bizarre theology surrounding the cross. I think we've laid a lot of nasty carpeting over the original image of what the cross is. I grew up with the narrative of the cross that went something like this. Jesus in the garden, and again last week we talked about this, he wasn't in a garden. It says nothing about a garden. Prayed, let this cup pass from me. And by saying that, he was calling an audible on the plan of history and saying, God, I don't want to go through with the plan of history because it's going to hurt. And then when he went to the cross, he became sinful and became an object of sin. And God cannot be around sin. And therefore, God rejected his own son on the cross. And some even take this narrative this far to say that Jesus then went to hell, did battle with Satan, chained him up preached to spirits in prison, was resurrected. That entire narrative is so philosophical. Everything I just said. I don't believe any of what I just said is true. I think it's nasty carpeting that we have to rip off on the authentic cross of Christ and what is happening. And so this morning, I'm just going to read through the narrative as it is presented in the book of Luke. I just want to sit at the feet of the cross Matt said something really powerful in his comments. He said a couple of things that were extremely powerful to me. One, and it's because I respect Matt so much. Matt is a hero in my life, and there are some reasons for that. But I know what the cross means to him. And when he stood up and he said, Jesus did that on purpose, it meant a lot to me. Because when Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from me, my personal belief, and again, this is just this is me, I believe that he's speaking of the cup that he just spoke of. He's not speaking of some cup of wrath out of Jeremiah or anything like that. He's speaking of a cup of a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I pray this. I, I think he's praying this. Let this mission come to a completion. Let this covenant begin. Um, let this cup of a new covenant be passed from me. On to the next generation. I do not believe Jesus was overcome with fear to the point of rejecting the cross. Um, the early church fathers, nobody taught that. That's a very recent idea. I also don't believe that um, God rejected Jesus on the cross at all. I don't believe that um, with Matthew, John, some of these uh, quote Jesus is saying, um, 
Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I won't get into that today because it's not in Luke's narrative, but it's a really rich and beautiful um, citation of Psalm 22. And what's happening in Psalm 22 in that scene is very rich and very beautiful. What is happening on the cross is incredibly profound. And I want to go ahead and open um, up with just verse 1 of chapter 23. Um, Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We've found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. When Herod and his soldiers ridiculed him and mocked him, they dressed him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends before they had been enemies. One thing that I picked up on in reading through this chapter uh, was how Jesus prayed for the unity of his body. That's, that's the context of, of, of or the content of, of John 17. His final prayer was that they would be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you, that they would be one. But what you see in Luke 23 is actually just the opposite. The disciples are scattered, but you're hearing one voice, one voice that's crying out through this chapter, and it's a voice of evil. With one voice they cried out, crucify him. The whole assembly led him to Pilate. Pilate and Herod become friends. You're seeing a theme of unity throughout the chapter, but it's the unity of darkness. It goes on and reads, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. 
He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves, for your children. For the time will come when they will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that have never bore, the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? And saying this, I believe he's, he's talking about his presence with them. If they do these things in a time when I have been present with you, teaching the grace and the humility of God, what's going to be done when I'm gone? Another interesting thing that, that um, I really want to invite you to study sometime because I think it's beautiful. Everything in the previous chapters has been about the men. The men gathering around Jesus. He washed the disciples' feet. The men were in the garden with Christ. When he's captured, the men scattered. And what do you see this theme of in the following chapters? Who's present with him constantly? The women. The women are there with him at the cross. He addresses the daughters of Jerusalem and the resurrection. It's the women that come to the... T- you see this theme, and it, 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 to me, and this is conjecture, but I wonder if how much Christ meant to these women. A Christ who came to breathe dignity and respect into these women's lives and transformation. Mm. Verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals. One on his right and one on his left. Now catch the wording here. I thought this was beautiful. When's the last time we heard that expression? One on your right, one on your left. Well, it just happened. In um, Mark's account, I believe it's in Matthew's account as well, um, two disciples, James and John, come to Jesus and say, Grant us that we would receive the glory when you come in your kingdom to be with you, one of us on your right and one of us on your left. In one account, it was their mother that asked for this. That they would be one on the right and one on the left. And now, and Jesus' glory coming in essentially into his kingdom, that, that wording could be debated, but who is honored, who is exalted, who is with him, one on his right hand and one on his left? Criminals. And it's so fitting for Jesus' ministry. I'll talk about that in just a, uh, just a moment. The text goes on and reads, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. Another false narrative that I think is surrounded the story of the crucifixion. There's, there's, there are a lot of... Uh, 
ideas and conjectures and philosophies that are just not trustworthy. Um, one of those is this, this idea of when they were offered him wine vinegar, that it was a numbing substance that would make the, the cross more bearable. Um, I don't know where that comes from. That's not, that's not true. Vinegar was another form of mocking Christ on the cross. Um, it's, it's referring to Psalm 69, verses 19 through 21. This is what the psalm reads. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food. That means poison or absinthe. And gave me vinegar for my thirst. Um, When you're in your darkest, when when you're so thirsty, when you're dying of thirst, to be offered vinegar is just another form of mockery was being taken place on the cross. There was written a, a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the cr- criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour. Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Um, Jesus' entire ministry through the book of John, um, I'm sorry, Luke, has been characterized by one who showed compassion to those who had been marginalized by society. We've been in this book for almost an entire year. And in that year, what we've seen, um, Jesus healing a crippled man on the Sabbath, Jesus heal, healing a, a, a paralytic on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, Jesus showing compassion to um, some forgotten man living in a graveyard who said, my name is Legion. He showed compassion to those that society had forgotten about, those that were too late for, lost in sin, lost in darkness. Do you remember when the woman came to him? A sinful woman came to him and begins to wash his feet and dry them with her hair. And he says this, do you see this woman? Calling attention to those that the elite of the, of, of the religious world had forgotten about. The Pharisees, their name literally means the, so those that are set apart Because they're righteous, they would walk around in this image of washing your hands and letting them drip dry because you can't come into contact with what is unclean, what is dark, and what is sick. And Jesus touches the leper. A woman comes, you remember this, you remember this happened in the book of Luke when he's approached by the synagogue ruler, Jairus, and he was asked to come and heal his daughter. And all of the crowd separates, you can just see them parting for this synagogue ruler. And then a woman comes, and she wants to go unnoticed, and she touches his robe, and Jesus turns his attention from the synagogue ruler to this woman 
who is sinful, who is lost in darkness, who doesn't even want to be recognized. And he called the entire attention of the assembly to that woman because he felt the touch of desperation. He saw Zacchaeus in a tree because his eyes found the desperate. He heard the voice above the shouts of the crowd. He could hear the voice of the blind men shouting out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Open our eyes. Jesus' heart throughout the book of Luke, throughout his ministry, was for those that recognized they were sinners. There are a lot of sayings about the cross of Christ that are not trustworthy today. There are a lot of philosophies that are not trustworthy. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 1. This is what is trustworthy. This is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. Daniel read this verse to us this morning. This is Romans 5, 6 through 8. It says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He said the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He said, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Uh, Matt mentioned in his comments this morning, Jesus did that on purpose. It reminds me of what Paul also said in the book of Colossians chapter 2. See, Jesus had just been stripped of his clothes. He had been mocked and made a spectacle of. And they felt that they triumphed over him. And Paul in the book of Colossians turns the whole thing around and he says this, no. He disarmed the powers and authorities. Um, I don't like that translation. That's the NIV. The, the word should read, he stripped them. It wasn't them who stripped Jesus. It was he who stripped them. He made a public, a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them by the cross. And in the cross, Jesus demonstrates um, the very nature of God, the character of God. What I want you to hear this morning as we sit at the foot of the cross of Christ. If you came to church and you are one of those, one of us, who has been haunted by these thoughts, I'm not like these people. I feel guilty. I feel judged. I have a life full of sin. Not just my past, my present. I come from a dark place, and I'm here with these people that, yeah, they're better than me. They don't have the past that I have. Every single one of us in this room is a sinner. And I know if you feel have a past that you're haunted by guilt, and the reason I'm emotional talking about this is not just because I'm Jeff. It's not just because I'm sitting at the foot of the cross it's because I know the people in this room that I'm speaking with. I want you to know that if you're in that place, you're exactly who Jesus came for. You're exactly who he loves. 
because you've come into touch with reality. The reality is, no matter how pharisaical the Pharisees became, they were lost in sin. And every single person surrounding him, those crying out, crucify him, they all needed a savior. And he chose to surround himself. And this is my conjecture. I admit that. But I do believe that it's making a very powerful point when it says in his death, he was flanked on his right hand and on his left by criminals. It says something I believe about the church today. That he came into this world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. This morning, I pray that we would be reminded as one body, not metal lark, as the church today, that we are in need of a Savior. And I pray that we would never become so righteous, so professional, that we would lose sight of that. And I pray that it would be our common need our one voice, our one cry for God's grace that would unite us as a people and that that would be the song we lift up before our God. Um, He said this, today you will be with me in paradise. What day? The day when the sun is covered with darkness, the day when the veil of the temple is torn, the day when darkness reigns is what he said in the previous chapter. That day... Today, you will be with me in paradise. Um, When you're going through a dark time, when you're going through the sickest thing, when you're going through whatever this life throws at you, I want you to know this, suffering endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. What you are witnessing in Luke 23, as dark as it is, as defining it is, as transformative as it is, it lasted for six hours. But the resurrection and the conquest of Christ in this world and the joy that he came to bring is eternal. The sin that has plagued your life, that haunts your life, that haunts mine as well, Jesus has the ability to deal with that. Your sin is forgiven in Christ. And so I want to close the same way we open today with a prayer for you and for God's body today. I pray that guilt will not keep you from the cross of Christ. I pray that nothing will keep you from his love. I pray that your pride will not keep you from the cross of Christ. And I pray that if you have not been baptized into Christ, that nothing would keep you from entering into his embrace, into his covenant, into his fellowship. Um, I guess I've said this. God recognizes you and you're hurt, and he does love you. Let's pray. Oh my God, I, I, I beg of you that I didn't get in the way today. And God, there's so many weird philosophies that we have just shrouded the cross of Christ in. And I just pray that, Father, just in its beauty, in its authenticity, we would just see that your incredible love um, for the for the worst of us. I pray, God, that there are those that are hearing my voice in this room or online. I, 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 I pray, Father, that um, 
that they would hear that um, you are the God that looks and searches for those that are the lost and that those that are hurting. That God, you take you take the lowliest of us and you you set us on on mountain peaks. You delight in doing that for your people. And I pray for restoration. I pray, God, that you would not allow our past to define us, but the cross of Christ to define us. I pray that you will not allow sin to have a grip on our lives, Father, but you would set us free from it by your grace. And I pray, Father, that at the end, when we fall into your arms, that we would never boast in our life and our accomplishments and our professionalism, but our one boast would be in the cross of Christ. Um, It's in his name we celebrate you. We celebrate your love and we celebrate your triumph. I pray, God, that the world would see that again in us today. Thank God for resurrection. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God.